passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. Well, good evening again. Uh, Merry Christmas. I want you to imagine for a second that you have been tasked by God to write an account of Jesus' life and his ministry. So no small task here, but imagine that God has approached you and said, hey, I want you to write an account of everything that happened when Jesus was on earth. How would you start that account? Maybe for some of us, we would start at the very beginning. We would start with the miraculous birth of Jesus, just like the gospel of Luke does. For others of us, we might just want to jump right into the meat of Jesus' ministry, right when he starts his ministry, and we would start at his baptism, just like the Gospel of Mark. And still for others of us, we might want to just blow past this and look at the significance of the Gospel, the significance of Christmas from a perspective of the entire cosmos, of the entire universe, like John does in his Gospel. There are many different ways that you could probably do this that would be acceptable to our modern ears, but the one way that you probably wouldn't go about this is how Matthew starts his gospel. Matthew starts his gospel with a genealogy, and to our modern ears, it might sound less like a bang and more like a whimper as he starts his story, his account of what Jesus has done and the significance of his life. It seems like it would be better found on Ancestry.com rather than telling the story of the most important facts and events in world history. So what is Matthew doing here? What is Matthew doing here? Did he have a bad editor? Did he drop the ball after God charged him to write down the gospel? Well, let's take a look. If you have a Bible, I invite you to open up to Matthew chapter 1. Otherwise, they're in your sermon notes if you grab some of those. We're going to be looking at Matthew 1, verses 1 through 17, and we're going to see the truths that are meant for us this Christmas, and essentially what we need to recognize that embedded in this genealogy is a truth that makes sense of Christmas and indeed makes sense of the entire gospel. If we don't have these 17 verses, then we can't fully understand the significance of Christmas. As we approach this text, we're going to see five promises that God gives to us this Christmas and each and every day. So five promises. We're going to look at each and every one of them here in a second. First, we're going to jump into Matthew chapter 1. This is a genealogy, and you might be saying, what on earth has he gotten himself into starting with a genealogy? Because this reads like a genealogy. But we're going to go ahead and jump in and just look at a couple verses here, starting in verse 1 of chapter 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ruth. Then we're going to skip to verse 5. Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Skip to the end, verse 16. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. 
So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And, to, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Merry Christmas. That is the way that Matthew starts his gospel. And, and if you're like me, you're left scratching your head and saying, what were you trying to get at, Matthew? Why, why did you start with this? Well, I mentioned there are five promises for us that, that really should just affect the way that we look at Christmas and every day of life. Let's take a look at each of these promises found in these verses. The first one is this. Christmas is good news. It's not just good advice. Christmas is good news. It's not just good advice. Matthew doesn't start his gospel with a once upon a time. He doesn't start his gospel with a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. He starts with a genealogy because he roots it in history. These are events that have actually happened. He's reporting what has actually happened, and he he has the lineage to prove what has taken place. He roots his gospel in history. And you might be saying, well, what's the significance as we look at advice and we look at news? What's the significance of history? Well, everything. You see, when when it comes to good advice, it really doesn't have to be historical. It doesn't have to tell us what has happened. It can, but it doesn't always have to be. It's just wise counsel from another person. On the flip side, news has to be historical if it's to be true. It relies or depends on the fact that it is rooted in History. It is something that isn't what we must do, but is instead what has happened. I want you to imagine for a second that there is a city, and this city is being approached by an invading army. This army is about to lay siege to this city. What is a city in need of if it's going to defend itself? Well, it needs some military advisors. It needs good advice from people to say, this is how you fortify the city. This is where you should put your infantry. This is where you should put your artillery and et cetera and et cetera, et cetera. But what if another king came and intercepted this invading army and defeated them before they could reach the city? What does the city need now? Does it need good advice Does it still need those military advisors, this counsel, this wise counsel? No. Instead, it needs messengers. It needs messengers bringing the good news of what has taken place, of the victory that has been won to save them from their enemies. They no longer need to hear, this is what you must do. Now they need to hear, this is what has been done for you. Christmas is good news. It's not just good advice. It's not just focusing on what we must do, but instead tells us what has been done for us. We do not need good advice. If you want some good advice, just go to the Walmart book section. There's plenty of self-help books there. The gospel is good news. It tells us what has been done for us, not what we must do. That's the first promise of Christmas. The second promise is this, God may take his time, but he keeps his word. God may take his time, but he keeps his word. When you start with a genealogy, one thing that that might stick out to you as you're looking at this is how long God had been at work, how long it took for him to get to Jesus. For the last year, and it probably seems like the last 10 years, we've been going through the book of Genesis on Sunday mornings. 
As we've been slowly inching our way through this book, we've looked at the life of Abraham from the the book of Genesis who lived thousands of years before Jesus. And we saw in this book, one of the things that God promised to Abraham is that he was going to use Abraham's family to save the entire world. He was going to use Abraham's family to make everything right that had been broken when Adam and Eve first sinned. The brokenness that we experience each and every day was one day going to be fixed by Abraham's family. But then we come to a genealogy. And the genealogy tells us it wasn't Abraham who saved us. It wasn't Abraham's son Isaac who saved us. It wasn't Isaac's son Jacob who saved us. It wasn't any of Jacob's sons who saved us. Goes on and on and on and on until we finally get to Jesus. Jesus, this genealogy reminds us that God keeps his word, but he oftentimes doesn't work on our timetable. He oftentimes doesn't work on our calendar. God has a plan and he works on his timetable. Why is it that God waited 2,000 years? between the the life of Abraham to the life of Jesus, till the first Christmas. Why is it that God waited so long? We don't ultimately know. We don't ultimately know why God waited so long. John chapter 11 tells us of a a time in Jesus' life when one of his friends is sick and some messengers come and say, hey Jesus, you should come to your friend. He's dying. You need to heal him. Everyone expected that Jesus would drop everything because this is one of his closest friends and he would go and he would go and heal him. But that's not what Jesus does. Jesus stays put. Jesus waits. Jesus lets his friend die. In fact, the text makes it very clear that after Jesus is aware that his friend is dead or after his friend dies, then Jesus sets out to go and visit the family. John 11, the first half of that chapter is a real head-scratcher. It's really confusing. What is Jesus doing? Why did he tarry? Why did he wait? Why didn't he just go on time to, to save this man from death? Well, the reason is because Jesus was doing what God has done from the very beginning. He was keeping his promises, but he was keeping his promises on his time. What we see from the book of John is that Jesus indeed kept his promises. He did indeed save his friend. And he did so by raising him from the dead. He did so in a way that brought even more glory, more worship to God, more astounding marvel at who God was because he was working on his timetable and not the world's. If you feel like you have been let down by God, If you feel like God has just failed to come through on some of the promises that he has made to you. This Christmas, remember. Look at the genealogy and remember. God keeps his word, but he does so on his timing. Let's look at another promise. God came for the outsiders 
God came for the outsiders. If we're looking at at the the book of Matthew, we go through the first 17 verses. We might come to grips with the purpose uh, of why Matthew starts with the genealogy. We might understand, okay, he's starting with with a genealogy because he wants to show that this is good news. It actually happened. It's rooted in history. We, want to, we, we might recognize, yeah, okay, I understand that not only did this happen, but also that God works on his timetable and not our own, that God isn't bound by what I want, when I want it, but instead he keeps his promises on his timing. Then we get to the actual meat of the genealogy, and as we study it, we can, we can just be left uh, scratching our heads, wondering what on earth is taking place here. Let me explain this. In ancient times, uh, a genealogy was a lot like a modern-day resume. It was one of your ways that you would put your best foot forward to show who you were and where you came from. This is a culture and a context where it really mattered what your family was like. It really mattered who you were related to in a way that doesn't really matter today, or at least doesn't matter as much. In fact, people would actually edit their genealogies. They would leave certain people out and, and include certain people in prominent places, so that way it would make them look better. It's the same thing that you would do with a resume. You don't include all of your faults and your failures. If you're trying to get a job, you sweep those under the rug and you highlight your strengths. In the same way, people would would hide their faults and their family that they weren't all that proud of in their genealogy. In fact, we have public record of, of King Herod actually crossing people out of his public record genealogy because he didn't want people to know he was related to them. And then we come to Matthew's record of Jesus' Jesus's genealogy. And not only does he not cross people out, but it seems like he highlights people that, that really should just disqualify him from serving. At least in the, the, the culture sense of you are related to that person. Let's take a look at a couple examples. First and foremost, there are women that are mentioned in this genealogy. Now, you have to recognize in the first century, women were almost never mentioned in genealogies, and yet Matthew mentions five women. Women were on the outside of society. They were on the fringes of society, and yet Jesus finds five of them in his genealogy. Matthew looks at it and says, this is so important that we're going to include five of these women here. And who are they? Well, the first one is Tamar. If you remember from uh, the book of Genesis, Tamar uh, is a Canaanite. She's an outsider. And, oh, by the way, she pretends she's a prostitute and commits incest with her father-in-law. Next one that's mentioned is Rahab. Rahab is another Canaanite, another outsider. And throughout the book of Joshua, she is described as Rahab the prostitute. And then we come to Ruth, and Ruth is not just a Canaanite, not just an outsider, but she's a detestable Moabite, someone who the, the book, uh, uh, or excuse me, the, the Bible says that they are no longer allowed in God's presence because he despises them so much. And then we come to Bathsheba. Bathsheba was also likely another Canaanite, another person who was on the outside of God's chosen people. And she was an adulteress. And then the final one is Mary. Mary is mentioned, and and she was considered by many people in her day to be a very morally questionable woman because she had a son before she was married to Joseph. Five women are mentioned here, all of them with questionable pasts, questionable uh, uh, character. 
except for Mary. But even the culture thought that she was a bad woman. These are women who were considered to be prostitutes, who were considered to be adulteresses. And what's more than that, they were Canaanites, or at least most of them were. They were not the people of God. What is Matthew trying to say here? What is Matthew trying to describe by including these women in Jesus' genealogy? He's trying to say these are the types of people that Jesus comes for. These are the types of people that Jesus comes to save. He wants us to look at the life of Tamar. He wants us to look at the life of Rahab. These people who are rejected by society, who have shameful past, who came from the wrong side of the tracks, who might not have the right blood. And Jesus says, I came for them. I came for those who are outsiders. It's not that God plays favorites with the underdog. Instead, these people are included here because it is a way to remind us of how our hearts must be if we are to come to God. If we are to enter into a relationship with God, our hearts must be like these. We must have a humble heart. We must not be proud. We must realize that all of us are outsiders to God. All of us are on the fringes of society in God's eyes. God came for the outsider. Our next promise is very similar. God came for the wicked. Not only did Jesus come to save the outsider, but he also came to save the wicked and the immoral. This genealogy is filled with examples of people who are immoral, who have questionable past. Let's just look at two more examples. The first one is Judah. Judah is mentioned in verse 3. And if you were with us on Sunday mornings when we looked at Genesis 38 and the life of Judah, you saw that he was a pig. And that's really putting it pretty mildly. That's being very generous to him. He was so selfish. He was so consumed with his own passions and his own lusts that when his daughter-in-law, Tamar, was widowed, he didn't want to take care of her. And so he decided to scheme to try to kill her off. Meanwhile, while he's hypocritically trying to get this witch hunt going to kill Tamar, the news comes out, oh, by the way, that he is the one who impregnated Tamar and she has twins. Judah is wicked beyond belief, and yet he's included in Jesus' genealogy. The genealogy emphasizes who this man is when it says this in verse 3. Judah, the father of Perez and and Zerah by Tamar. Notice, first of all, it mentions Tamar. That's the one thing that that should highlight or should draw us to pause and to focus on on the questionable ethics here. And then second, both Perez and Zerah are mentioned. If this is just a genealogy, why include the brother who has no relation or no direct relation to Jesus? It's trying to emphasize the wickedness of Judah. Another one that's mentioned here is David. Verse 6, David, we're all familiar with the story of David and Bathsheba, how David lusts after a woman who is married, and he decides to commit adultery with her, and then once he finds out that she's pregnant, he decides to kill the man, her husband, off, so to cover it up. Matthew's followers, Matthew's readers would have been familiar with this story as well. But notice how he highlights it, how he draws attention to it here. He wants to focus on David's wickedness. Look at verse 6 again. Jesse, the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by, it doesn't say Bathsheba, it says by the wife of Uriah. 
Matthew is making it very, very clear what kind of man David was in this moment. The wickedness that we see from David in this moment. So why are these people included here? It's not to make us feel better about our own sin, because at least we didn't do that. It's not to point out to us that to sin to God is just isn't that big of a deal. They are included in here because they show us the types of people that Jesus came to save. When we talk about Christmas, when we talk about Jesus coming to earth, these are the types of people he came to save. That there is no one who is too far gone for God and his grace. The reality is, if we were to take a poll in here, and we're not going to do that, so you can say thank you. But if we were to take a poll, I'd say most of us, if not all of us, would, would say, well, I didn't do what Judah did. I didn't do what David did. But even if we did, there's grace. There is grace for those who are wicked. God came for the wicked. He came for people like you. He came for people like me. That's why the gospel is good news, not just good advice. But here's the kicker. We have to recognize our wickedness. We have to recognize that we are wicked in God's eyes. The gospel is indeed good news, but it is also offensive. It is offensive to be told that you are wicked. It is offensive to be told that you are in need of a savior and that is exactly what the gospel does. It says that there is good news for the wicked because God came for the wicked. God came for us. So the question for us this morning is are we going to be humble enough to admit our own wickedness? That's the fourth promise of Christmas that God came for the wicked. The final one that we see in this genealogy is probably the most important for us this evening, and that is this. God came to give us rest. God came to give us rest. If we look at the end of this genealogy, verses 16 and 17, there's this focus, this emphasis on the numbers of generations. Matthew says there were 14 generations between Abraham and David. Then there are another 14 generations between David and the exile. And then there are another 14 generations between the exile and the arrival of Christ Jesus. What's the significance here? Let's do a little math. 14 divided by 2 is 7. All right. Very good. You you know, school's out, but we're still focusing on our math skills here. Okay, so 14 divided by 2. So we have a set of 7 and another set of 7 between Abraham and David. And then we have another set of seven and another set of seven between David and the exile to Babylon. And then we have another set of seven and another set of seven between the exile to Babylon and the arrival of Christ. So we have seven, 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 seven. Six sets of seven. And then Jesus comes. And Jesus is the seventh seven. The number seven is highly significant in the Bible. It's highly significant because of the book of Genesis. When God creates the entire universe, on the seventh day, he rests. He pauses from his work and he rests. The people of Israel, for centuries afterward and even today, would rest on the seventh day in respect of this day looking forward to the rest that God will one day give them, this Sabbath rest. 
And then we come to Jesus and we come to this genealogy. And Matthew makes this extremely significant claim where he says that Jesus is bringing in a Sabbath of Sabbaths. Jesus is bringing in a rest that you could never imagine before now. Jesus is bringing in the rest for your soul that you so desperately need and you so desperately long for. Jesus comes to bring just a little bit of a taste of the future. Jesus comes to bring us rest. Matthew is declaring that Jesus is the only place where you can find that rest. Jesus is the only place where you can find rest from your strivings. The only place where you can find rest from your busyness. The only place you can find rest from your anxieties. The only place that you can find rest from the cultural pressure to maintain your appearances. Jesus comes to bring you rest. And that is what Christmas declares to us. And so as we close, if there's one thing that we would take home this evening, I hope it is this. Come to Jesus for rest. Come to Jesus for rest. If there is one thing that separates Christianity from other world religions, other non-religions, ways of thinking in this world, it is this, that Jesus comes to bring us rest. In the, early, in the early church, in the 5th century, there was a church father named Augustine. and He famously said, I have read in Plato and Cicero sayings both wise and beautiful, but I have never read, come to me all ye who are weary and heavy laden. Come to me all ye who are weary and heavy laden. Come to Jesus for rest. In Jesus, we find good news that we could nowhere find elsewhere. In Jesus, we can see that God keeps his promises. In Jesus, we see that God comes for the outsider. In Jesus, we see that God comes for the wicked. And in Jesus, we see that God comes to bring us rest, to give us peace for our souls, to calm our strivings and all of our longings. Jesus gives us rest. Let's pray. Lord, as we stand before Christmas, the celebration of your coming to earth, let us not forget the significance of Christmas. The good news of the gospel. The fact that you have kept your promises in Jesus. That you came for us even when we are on the outskirts of society. That you came for us even when we come from wicked pasts. And that you come to give us rest. Rest from trying to earn our way to you. Rest from the busyness of this world, the anxieties of this world. God, help us to encounter that rest this Christmas. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.